Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that puts the zero in net zero. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. And we are delighted that our first guest of 2021 is the guru behind Shazayati.com and Friends of the Earth activist, Shaz Rahman. Hello, Shaz. Hello again. This November, the UK hosts COP26, where countries are going to show how they're going to ratchet up their climate change commitments that they made in Paris in 2015. We're going to talk about an Institute for Government report on how the UK government might achieve net zero by 2050. We'll look at some of the challenges and how they might be overcome. this podcast we're going to start with a a bunch of optimism because I read the report and the start of the report there is a a fun stat which is that the UK's already reduced its emissions by 43% by 1990 which I suppose is quite good news isn't it and it's it's world leading as well aside from countries who don't emit much that's arguably one of the biggest success stories which we don't really talk about and we probably should well, you'd think that a government that tried to put a Union Jack onto a vaccine would maybe like th- something that was actually good that we were actually world leading at as something to crow about. But yeah, and, and that goes back, I suppose, Margaret Thatcher in the 80s was one of the first prime ministers to really champion climate change as an issue on the world stage. And there was a Climate Change Act, the new Labour and Ed Miliband as well. I suppose that's the good news, isn't it? Then the, the report very much then talks about the bad news, which is in terms of getting net zero by 2050, we've kind of done the easy bits, haven't we, Shaz? Yeah, so what we've done so far is we've moved energy production away from fossil fuels to mostly renewable. We used to be really dependent on coal-powered fire stations and gas-powered fire stations. The the gas is kind of stable, but the coal is almost, give it another couple of years, it'll be gone entirely. A couple of years ago, we had a big news story saying that coal hasn't been in our energy mix, and that was big news. And then last year, it was like, was it like 20, 30 days where... We didn't need coal at all, mm. due partly down to the success of offshore wind, lesser to extent of small scale solar as well. Yeah, and regular listeners may remember that that coal fact was indeed a question on the Not Enough Champagne quiz. So I'm guessing now everyone in Britain knows about it. <laughs> yeah, and then there's also it's, it's basically the basis that David Cameron claimed that his Conservative government was the greenest government ever, which he got mocked for, and probably rightly so. But that was his basis for it, is that in terms of reducing emissions, that government was part of a significant reduction in carbon emissions. So, as you say, it's the, the, the power emissions which have massively gone down. The problem is then you've got the hard bits. So there's three real areas, aren't there, that the report highlights as being the areas in which you need to have big changes to hit net zero by 2050. Uh, so they are transport housing and business essentially those three areas are the the last little bits which which are the hardest to get and they require the most most effort quite correctly what the government's done is they've basically focused on like you know the the Pareto principle where you do the greatest uh the minimum the the smallest amount of work for the greatest 
impact to begin with. You know, they focused on that. They've, we've ended up switching over more to uh, renewable energies and clean power sources, which is great. But as you say, we're then left with these three um, areas. And, and I think the, 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 one of the things that the report shows is in these three areas, they're basically just static. We've just not really been able to make any movements in, in, in the right direction at all. Part of that is like if we take transport as, as an example, is because so many of the policy announcements that have kind of happened in this arena are still things that are set to happen in the future. So originally petrol and diesel vehicles were set to be banned by 2040. That's now moved down to 2030, I think, as of an announcement at some point by, by this government. But that's still a a future thing and even then if you consider that just just that area of transport yeah switching over obviously to electric cars and things is going to be very uh, beneficial but what it actually uh, it does isn't necessarily going to be a massive silver bullet because what you'll find is that by let's let's assume that 2030 is when when this actually does come in yeah you won't be able to buy a new petrol diesel car or, or, or whatever anymore but there's still going to be millions of cars that are petrol and diesel on the road because most people don't buy new cars you know they're very expensive so what you probably need to see in that area is also future plans drawn up for how are we going to get people to make that switch are we going to do you know in effect a a, a buyback system um, where people can you know swap their polluting a car for a clean one which i think which i think has been done in in some instances in the past in some areas around like um, cars which put out certain types of emissions and so you do have these sorts of things there there is planning there but they do appear to be future problems which don't necessarily even have the full kind of plan in place to uh, actually make the impact they need to have for us to hit those targets overall they are very much falling into the traditional that's some of the future government's problem rather than looking at this holistically and kind and going you know what if we put something in place now chances are every other government will just kind of stick with it the big thing with the electric cars is that you don't have the charging infrastructure at all yet can only really be a viable solution for people who want to switch over if they can reliably charge their car once they're 20 miles past their house. And that's that's the technology bit we haven't don't have the infrastructure for yet. But also it's a bigger question than that is that if you still have electric cars instead of regular diesel or petrol, you still have congestion, you still have hundreds of lost hours, then they may not produce as many carbon emissions over their lifetime, but they're still nowhere near as good for society as a bus. So you, the priority should be to try and get people walking and cycling and using public transport, improving regional rail networks. So whilst we do want electric cars to be part of the future, they, they can't be the future. What you're kind of seeing here is a bit of short-sightedness, really, from multiple governments. But they've ended up focusing on one problem rather than looking at this almost as a, a holistic um, issue where actually, as you say, if we can get people onto you know, um, public transport in, in various forms, what we do is we solve multiple problems. We don't just solve climate uh, emissions. We also solve air pollution. We also solve people wasting hours a day stuck in traffic. So far, don't appear to have ever really thought of it in that way. Uh, and again, largely because it's just somebody else's problem, because that's in 20 years, that's in 30 years. So the other thing on transport with electric cars, it's also if more people are using electric cars and you do put that infrastructure in place, 
then you're going to end up having to produce more electricity as well. So as we've said, one of the main reasons we've had this big fall of emissions is because we've been able to decarbonize a big amount of our power sector. But if you end up in a situation where you need to produce a lot more electricity, not just say on electric cars, but on the internet uses a lot of electricity. Also things like um, like Bitcoin, there was a new story this week, I think Bitcoin having the same amount of power generated as a country, I think the size of Amman, I think it was, or, well, if you're gonna to have to produce a lot more electricity, you need to make sure that that electricity is being generated in a, in a renewable way as well, don't you? So that's transport. In terms of the, the the other two, so housing takes about 15% of the UK's total emissions, most of which is because we need to heat our homes and heat water. So 85% of the UK's 29 million homes are heated by gas boilers, and they'll need to replace. So as similar to the electric cars thing, isn't there? There's a massive infrastructure challenge there that you need to try and to roll out. And then businesses is the other bit. So although business has cut emissions by about a third, I think, they are still responsible for a fifth of the UK's emissions. Uh, so in terms of housing, in my day job, I, I work in housing for an energy company, which shall not be named. And I work in eco, um, um, and that's basically where I see on a day-to-day basis how energy inefficient our country is. So in terms of fuel poverty, there's always been some work to try and get insulation measures and improve energy efficiency into the lowest, more deprived ends of of our society. As Corey said there, I've got a gas boiler. I think you've got a gas boiler, haven't you? You two as well. What do we replace that with? Uh, Everyone keeps saying hydrogen to me. Uh, is that five years, 10 years? New build houses won't be able to have gas boilers installed in 2025. What will they have? Will they have ground source heat pumps installed as standards instead? Will there be district heating? So there'll be one heating system for an entire road of the new build properties. So that, those are kind of things where it, it's, it's the same as the electric car. We know what we need to get to, but we haven't spent the money to get there. And we need to spend the money to invest in the technologies which aren't economically marketable yet so they won't pay for themselves they have to be paid for at a loss as an investment just talking to something i know a little bit about due to again my my day job at various points is 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 district heating um i had to market uh, basically for a company um who, who who produced um combined heat and power units which often are what tend to go go into district heating solutions and you you just have this massive massive issue where yeah for future builds you know you can put all of these things in place that's that's great but short of tearing up everybody's roads across the entirety of the uk and then reconnecting everybody's houses up to those new new systems it's very difficult to get get people actually get them away i suppose from from gas boilers and, and gas central heating and unless we basically go you know what we're just going to make put uh, get uh, get electric ones put in which again could function and could work but requires massive government effort and investment to basically say hey because it's not just well because it's not just going to be a case of you know what we're going to give incentives to this to make it work it needs to be we need to make people do this which means you've either got to force people to do it in in some form uh, and they've got to pay for it, or you've got to pay for it on their behalf, which is going to be incredibly expensive. 
given you wouldn't effectively need to do it for more or less every single house in the country. From a consumer point of view, or you know, a regular person, electric heating is really, really poor compared to gas central heating. Mm-hmm. So even if you have new high heat retention storage heaters, which are very fancy and cost thousands, that's still going to be more expensive to use as a system than a gas central heating boiler will. And if we do move, maybe not to hydrogen, but to electric heating, which we've tried to get away from for the past 50 years, again, as Corey said earlier, we, we then need to reduce a hell of a lot more electricity to heat those high heat retention storage heaters mm-hmm. with new builds as well. Building regulations are being weakened, not strengthened. So, you know, we, we should be looking to build to passive house standards, but building regs aren't going that way. They're, they're being weakened and planning laws are being weakened to make it easier for new build developers to make more of a profit. And moving forward, next 10, 20 years, these housing standards need to be better, not worse. Did you want to talk about business? Oh, yeah, we can talk about business first. Can't we? Yeah. We, we live in a capitalist country. Businesses will respond to certainty and incentives. So if you don't make it easier for businesses to move away from gas or electric or whatever it is, reduce pollution levels in their waste, they won't. But if you incentivize them to, they will. Or incentivize them through, you know, economic means, you know, tax breaks or even just the law. Businesses will do what they have to do. They won't necessarily do it because they want to do it unless that's their market just as an easy example right mcdonald's is going to bring out a vegan food range this year because they've seen the market move and lots of people are trying veganism for the first time not necessarily for environmental reasons but for health reasons and so mcdonald's has seen this trend and is going that way like kfc has a vegan burger because i had that one out for last year Burger King has one, but then ditched it because of COVID, and I see it will come back. Uh, I, I am very cynical, obviously, but they will react in their best interests. So we have to make it in their best interests to decarbonise. That's a good way, I think, of talking about the next section of the report, which talks about a lot of the barriers. And one of the barriers that they identify is this short-term thinking that creates uncertainty for business. And I was struck, actually, reading the report about a lot of the... The, the, the government's treatment of businesses over Brexit is actually pretty similar in a lot of ways to treating of businesses over climate change and going net zero as well. Because as you say, with um, it, it seems like there's a lot of short-term policy thinking. It isn't necessarily thought through. Report talks about, I think, like the, the bungled rollout of smart meters being an example. Or, um, also, there's, um, there was a plan to try and retrofit homes and make them more energy efficient, and that sort of collapsed with very few homes being upgraded, uh, but ended up costing quite a lot. So you've got- Are you, are you a, a, talking about the Green Deal? Yes. Okay, so uh, I've also worked on the Green Deal. And what the Green Deal was, was an attempt to get people who could afford to contribute to contribute. So it was a slightly different tack. So uh, whereas lots of the eco stuff is give insulation to vulnerable and deprived people for free, who live in fuel poverty, the other end are people who- could potentially contribute but won't for various reasons and so what the green deal was say you lived in a lovely victorian terrace um, that looks very nice but it's very cold because it was built in 1902 
and say you wanted to insulate it, but insulating it by yourself would cost £9,000. That's a lot of money to find. What the Green Deal was meant to do was offer you a loan in advance and then you'd pay off that loan with the savings you'd make and therefore you'd be better off over the lifespan of the insulation over the 25 years. Now that didn't work at all. That never really happened. The interest rate was 9% and that was, I mean, you would have been much better off just going to a bank and saying, can I have a loan? I'll just pay for it through the bank. There was some success uh, in the sense that the same scheme, the Green Deal, had a local authority aspect to it. So I was working on it where, say, this same £9,000, two-thirds of it would be paid for by a combination of local authority funding and the central government funding. And then the remaining third would be paid for by the customer. That was a much, much bigger success. So to pay £3,000 for a £9,000 product is, is more of a reasonable ask. And, and that's the point of the, the Green Homes Grants as well, which is live at the moment as we speak. So, so what the Green Homes Grant is, is an attempt by the government to try and get people who can afford to pay towards energy efficiency measures to pay towards them, but subsidise them in a way that will happen without, because without the subsidy it won't happen. So what the Green Homes Grant is, Say, for example, you wanted external wall insulation, it costs £6,000. Your government would contribute 4000 and you'd contribute 2000 So there's a level you can get assistance with. And it's a good idea. It's had a difficult birth, shall we say, because initially it was only going to run for six months, but nobody could find a contractor to do it. And so the government have had to extend it for another year. So now we'll end in March 2022. There are two aspects to it. Some people want new windows because their windows are you know, old or and out of date or they're blown. Um, but you can only get new windows under this scheme if you get insulation. But that doesn't help you if your house is already insulated. The, the, the idea of the scheme is to try and target insulation measures, but you can only really use them if you're in a certain property. So it's an interesting attempt by the government to try and improve our insulation stock. And hopefully, now that it's been extended, hopefully we'll see it be more of a success. But for example, I, I, I couldn't use it. My house is already carried all insulated and loft insulated. And I would love new windows and doors, but you can only get them if you do the insulation stuff first. Hopefully a little bit more successful than the Green Deal, as you said, which was the coalition government's flagship home efficiency policy. But then it was shelved, I think, because as you say, very little take up, very little efficiency. And so one of the, that's one of the barriers then is government not being able to draw up well thought through policy. That might well possibly be because there's a, a lot of short term thinking. So there's a huge amount of ministerial churn. There's one of the scariest pages in the report is when they have a, a chart of the minister churn that we've had in various departments important for this. And it's something that we've talked about obliquely on the podcast several times but when you see it mapped out that we've had 24 different transport secretaries in 30 years and you start to wait when you start to sort of see why there is such a lack of strategic thinking here and the, one of the other big things I suppose in terms of business is is cost and the estimated cost I think was when Philip Hammond anyway was chancellor it was a trillion he said it would be a, it would be a trillion pounds over 30 years which is one of the reasons Theresa May sort of balked at it 
Um, but there's a wonderful line where that cost is criticised by economists because apparently what the Treasury analysis does, that, that trillion pounds doesn't take into account any of the benefits of acting. They're not accounted into the cost. But also the cost doesn't include the costs of not acting either and the costs of inaction, which, as we've already seen from climate change, is going to be pretty bloody huge. The, the argument in the report is trillion pounds can't be borne by government alone and therefore you're going to have to encourage businesses and probably ordinary people to bear some of that cost and again Steve's already talked about do you try and do that voluntarily um, do you try and nudge people to do it do you try and shove people to do it and then I suppose you, you do have that question of does COVID and the response to COVID show that actually governments can try and take on a lot of that cost already well the government is a creator of money you could just create more money uh, people will buy your money because the government is a stable institution. So, for example, you know, um, in the report, the report points out that Germany has put £130 billion pounds or a euro equivalent green recovery strategy in place. And as I talked about hydrogen earlier and central heating, they're putting £9 billion pounds equivalent to hydrogen as a way to heat their homes. The money can be there. Who would have thought of the how much the government would spend on COVID measures to support those in furlough a year ago, right? Mm. Like it's the will that's not there, not the not the money. The money can be created. Economic theory has moved on in the last 50 years, I'd hope. <laughs> well, in which direction? <laughs> um, well. that I think is a key thing to emphasize, isn't it? Like it's it's a lack of political will that means things aren't being done. Uh, rather than anything else, rather than it being a technological issue or even even a financial issue. I find it kind of exciting that you say that the British government's a stable institution because I don't think anyone said that in about six years. But well, yeah, uh, people but, buy uh, government debts. This is yeah. It, it, it is it is as stable uh, debt as you will ever find. Uh, the the mainstream view of what government debt is flawed. A government is not a household, so it shouldn't be bound by the same. Uh, drawbacks in terms of you know you don't if you if you don't pay a credit card then that's a bad thing but a government issues money it doesn't yeah it doesn't have to pay it back in the same way that you have to pay your bank back yeah absolutely sorry i'm um i'm making a very glib point and you're making a serious point about economic policy <laughs> so we should probably move on <laughs> let's talk about that like a political will then because that is one of the biggest barriers which is seen and actually chris Hune gets mentioned that i'd forgotten that chris Hune existed but he's one of the people that the report's interviewed energy and climate change minister for the lib dems and the coalition government one of the things that he says is that no uk prime minister has made combating climate change a priority so and chris Hune says that the nearest person who's come close to doing this is Margaret Thatcher and I think it is Margaret Thatcher that you in 1989 and Charles Moore makes a big issue of this in the third volume of his Thatcher biography it's Thatcher who actually I'm guessing because one of the few high profile British politicians to have a science background as well and also fun fact aside is a lot of the government scientific departments were also responsible for doing a lot of the mapping and stuff behind the Falklands war so when they start saying that climate change is an issue that just takes them seriously as well because she she kind of knows to trust them which is i think it's interesting your glazed expression suggests it probably isn't but so it's margaret thatcher kind of spearhead stuff at the un in 1989 as you say under new labor and the cameron coalition emissions fall but it's probably fair to say climate change wasn't really a top priority of either 
of any prime minister. So, uh, and with David Cameron, I, 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 so, had, oh, sorry. I had high hopes that Ed Miliband had he have won. So did we all, but you know, we would have had chaos, Shaz, and it couldn't be allowed. <laughs> so here we are in this nice, stable time instead. And um, it wasn't really a priority for May at all. She kind of balked off of the cost and was too busy sort of firefighting Brexit to develop any sort of meaningful climate policy. Cameron starts off that very cosmetic modernising of the Conservatives, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, trying to look good on green issues, but then kind of balks uh, and says you know, he doesn't want to get distracted by green crap, which is apparently what he privately called kind of the costs of retrofitting homes. Boris Johnson in October, in a, this is one of a number of areas in which he says he's going to personally take control and was going to take control of this committee on climate change, took control of it in October 2019 and then didn't meet until March 2020, which probably tells you a lot about Boris Johnson's policy focus. And obviously it's been on COVID and Brexit for understandable reasons. But even um, so Dominic Cummings, he was apparently quoted as talking, not wanting to spend three billion pounds on, um, I think what he said, like boring things like like insulation. So it kind of comes back to Steve's point earlier, like the nuts and bolts of policymaking are seen as not being sexy enough. And so there just is that, that lack of pushing at the top no prime minister's made it their priority and the, what the report argues is a prime minister has to make it their priority for them to for, for climate change to be properly addressed as an issue yeah so what the report states is that we lost DEC, the department for energy and climate change and the department for business energy and industrial strategy is kind of a sideline department what really needs to happen is that all key decisions need to have decarbonisation net zero by 2050 in their decision-making process. So for example, uh, it needs to be part of the treasury. Otherwise you'll get policies still coming through that are against 2050 net zero policy wise. So building new roads, like this new road through Stonehenge. uh, One of the details of the report was that the economic impacts was costed, but not the environmental cost properly. So they, they don't, properly count the carbon emissions of new road building because of that they don't think that building this massive road through Stonehenge will be uh, will go against their net zero targets when it went quite clearly will that's why things like airport expansion as well uh, you, you can't expand an airport like Heathrow and then expect to be able to hit a net zero 2050 target so is well, we don't have when we don't have that joined up thinking like uh, the report says that every decision that is a key infrastructure decision has to have a representative or at least somebody arguing for net zero. Otherwise, it will just be overlooked. But last year, talking about how the Treasury Green Book might be changed to take into account the um, benefits of certain infrastructure and how it might then end up benefiting areas outside London. And that surely has to be a key way of making sure that we do hit this target because as you say like we, we go and the, and the report says as well you've we need to have a massive economic recovery and you need to embed net zero in that one of the things i thought was slightly absurd is that what i think if i'm reading the report correctly one of the ways in which the british government is going to try and claim it can hit this net zero target is essentially by carbon offsetting so trying to buy in carbon emissions reductions from other countries which just seems 
really nonsensical. It's like saying that I can hit my weight loss target if I kind of pay some someone who's already thin. And it doesn't really mean there'll be carbon reductions either, though. I mean, that kind of works on the basis that this country are paying to reduce their carbon emissions or not increase their carbon emissions, that they're going to, what if they weren't going to anyway, and they're just taking a nice paycheck from you? The, the, the basis of, of that kind of idea is is effectively it's carbon trading, which as a, as a policy agenda t- does probably have some some use, but not necessarily on an international basis. Like saying, oh, France hasn't, France has reduced by this much, Britain hasn't, therefore we can buy France's doesn't help because that doesn't reduce your overall global targets. What you can probably do with a policy like that, though, is, again, going back to businesses as, as an example, you could say every business has a limit of X, you know, tons of carbon they can they can effectively produce quote unquote and then uh if certain places do go over they then and others don't you can purchase those so helping businesses and encouraging them in that kind of way but at the same time you've got control for the businesses of what that total number is so you can then next year decrease it a little bit more decrease it a little bit more decrease it a little bit more so you can force them over time to actually properly decrease everything because you just changed the budget they have available which is something that businesses are quite used to working within how successful that would be no idea but that's that's certainly something you that that would be a bit more feasible than this international notion of the idea you can make targets for businesses so you know, France has given out a bailout to the aero industry on the basis that they have to cut their emissions and they have to reduce domestic flights. So that's something that our government needs to be doing as well. COVID has shown that governments, even really neoliberal governments like ours and the United States, they can spend big on stimuluses and recovery packages. It's just where they want to invest and what parts of the economy they want to target that is what matters most yeah and actually put it as you say putting it at the heart of government so if you're going to build a road you need to include those emissions in place and so in terms of looking at the solutions then that's definitely part of it it's about embedding it at the heart of government and making it a priority and then there's also because it's an institute for government report there's a sort of technical politically bits aren't they so it says as you say rather than being part of a business and put in a cabinet office somewhere a bit more heft and also there's not really an effective scrutiny at the moment so i don't think mps have had a a substantive debate on parliament since the climate change act in 2008 if you had a, a net zero scrutiny committee where you could include people from transport from housing from other areas of government as well so that they are being held to account on how they are going to reduce carbon emissions in their departments is another thing they, they talk about the other nuts and bolts thing is actually again the the ghost of dominic cummings sort of hangs over doesn't it but actually trying to recruit more scientists with a background in government so try and develop a cadre of civil servants with a science background who understand the issues and are able to develop well thought out policy on these issues too and the, the other thing i think the report touches on which i think is important is that it needs to get the general public on side and that's going to be really difficult some of the stuff we've done has been the general public hasn't really noticed the difference have been to a coal power station but i work in the energy industry right uh, i imagine you two haven't been to a coal power station and it doesn't matter 
like it, it doesn't change your usage of electricity like you still turn your lights on you still watch your tv or do whatever you like like the electricity pumped into your home is an important thing but it doesn't matter to you personally what happens when we now have to say oh we're gonna this house is gonna cost five thousand pounds more because it's gonna be a passive house standard that journey you did in your in your car well actually you're gonna get the bus to work now because we're gonna put a bus stay in it and that bus stay in is now the priority governments try to do some things and then they get a backlash and then they get scared and don't do these things so how will our government bring the people on board and that's a really difficult question it's not an easy answer i would even want me to campaign the right and i don't know the answer to that question it is a massive issue and the report does highlight it in yeah, a, yeah how do you get not, people to accept that they're going to have to use less whether it's about the political will isn't it because the polling is kind of interesting that generally uh you have a majority sort of in favor even when you sort of Talking about the trade-offs, I think people are, are happy. It is in all. It was in the Labour manifesto and the Conservative manifesto and the Lib Dem manifesto. So it's about how do you get almost active consent rather than passive consent. Um, I mean, it talks about in the report about citizens' assemblies. I think in Ireland and France, which they've done to try and talk about what the trade-offs are, so that you can at least ha have that public engagement and discussion and try and bind some consent. One of the things reports as well, it's about having to make it cross party as well, because this is something where you have, you've got to have, this is a 30 year process. You're going to need, you know, that's six, five year terms based on the last five or six years, you're probably talking 15 different governments, but you know, let's just assume it's more like half a dozen. You need to make sure there's a proper consensus in place. Almost in the way that the, you know, the, there's, there was almost the American foreign policy consensus in the Cold War, or you, the UK sort of financial, uh, economic consensus from about 1979 to 2008. It needs to be sort of that level, doesn't it, of buy-in? I think it's achievable in a way that I, I didn't think it was achievable five years ago. I mean, there is some optimism there. Five years ago, it was the Greens kind of going on about this. But now all of the parties accept maybe apart from the Brexit party, but, you know, you're never going to win them over. There is hope there. Uh, we do, ha do we have a citizens' assembly? I think there is one. Yes, there is, indeed. Climateassembly.uk, the, the, the latest news post is from the 10th of September 2020. Yeah, I, it feels like the election of Joe Biden could well be a bit of a tipping point, uh, especially given... And the, again, the report talks about this. You've got COP26 in November, where if there is a, a plan, and actually America, hopefully, presumably will be there under a Biden presidency. So you're going to have America, you're going to have China, you're going to have the EU, you're going to have Britain, you're going to have South Korea. Like most of the countries in the world will be there committing to drastically cutting carbon emissions by 2050. And that feels like it ought to be optimistic. Whether or not we should feel optimistic is maybe what we can talk about in our next podcast shows when we're going to talk about Joe Biden's environmental policy and the impact that it might have. Um, before we do that, obviously, we have a couple of parish notices. Shaz, is there an interesting website on politics and culture that our listeners might find worth visiting? Of course. That's why I'm here, to vlog my product. So, yeah, I've got a website called shazayati.com where I talk about environmental campaigning and wider society. And 
this uh, this is basically standard warehouse territory for what I write about. So uh, check it out, and if you like it, uh, tell tell the of Champagne. So you know, so it's worthwhile my being here. And Steve, do you have a product to flog? I mean, I could flog our product, I suppose. If you uh, are interested in uh, helping support this podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where you can sign up as one of our backers or our champagners, as we like to call them. And uh, yeah, fling us a few quid uh, every month. Uh, you'll gain access uh, to uh, blog posts that are unique and only go out to our, our, our backers, as well as uh, episodes that only uh, our Patreon backers get. Um, and uh, you'll also get early access to um, bits and pieces as well. So there's a few bits and pieces which are going to be going up over the... Uh, onto the, uh, the, the the main site over the next few weeks, which have uh, already gone up onto the Patreon. And uh, join us for um, some debate and discussion and uh, some good times. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Flicky Good Times. Our Twitter handle's at nochampagnepod. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Shazwellman30. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.